Major Paul Wing, a 50-year-old Army Signal Corps officer with blue eyes and a balding head of brown hair, stood at one end of a lateral tunnel within Corregidor Island's Malinta Tunnel Maze. The air was hazy with dust particles, shaken off the walls and ceiling by the relentless air and artillery bombing from Japanese forces just two miles away on Bataan Peninsula. The 16 men sitting in front of Major Wing were part of the U.S. Army's Philippine Headquarters Finance Department. The servicemen were working at their desks, which were covered with papers, books, typewriters, and calculating machines. Look this way, Major Wing said, loud enough for his voice to carry to the tunnel's end. He lifted his government-issued camera toward his face. Most of the men looked to the camera, a couple kept their eyes on their work, and two others hid behind comrades or turned away completely. Disregarding the camera shy men, Wing snapped the photograph. And that photo would become one of the last items smuggled out of the Philippines before the entire nation fell to Japanese forces. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the United States surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather was a prisoner of war in the Philippines, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you, like me, believe it's important for people to hear this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Word of mouth is the number one way people find new podcasts, so by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. Today's episode centers on one of the last photographs smuggled out of the Philippine Islands before the United States surrendered the entire nation to Japan. I'll describe the photo a bit later in the episode, but I've posted it on Facebook, Instagram, and the podcast website if you'd like to and are able to take a look at it as we chat today about five men who are featured prominently in the photograph. Also, this episode includes a few podcasts first, including a trip to the 8th Annual Academy Awards. Let's jump in. Born on August 14, 1891 in Tacoma, Washington, Paul Wing was the only child of P. Benson Wing and his wife, Ida May. Paul grew up in Tacoma, Washington, where his father was an oculist assistant and then surgeon. Paul graduated from high school around 1909, and a year later, the 19-year-old 5-foot 11-inch student with brown hair and blue eyes enlisted in the hospital corps. A branch of the Army's Medical Corps, and lasting from 1888 to 1915, the hospital corps trained men in various field medical tasks, ranging from cooking to first aid and nursing to horse care. In the early 1910s, Paul moved across the country to attend Staunton Military Academy in Virginia. While there, Paul married Martha Thraves on Christmas Eve, 1912. The young, growing family ping-ponged between Washington and Virginia during the mid-1910s. Their first daughter was born in Tacoma, Washington in 1914. Their second came the next year in Virginia. And their third, well, a year after that in Tacoma. 
Paul was part of the Washington State National Guard, and on June 16, 1917, he entered the U.S. Army full-time as a first lieutenant in the U.S. Army Field Artillery. He spent the next year at various training camps in the United States, and then, as I think you've already guessed, in the summer of 1918, amidst the heat of World War I, Lieutenant Wing was sent to France to join the 19th Field Artillery, which was part of the American Expeditionary Forces. As part of that unit, Lieutenant Wing likely participated in the Battle of St. Mihiel, which was fought in September 1918 and was the first large offensive launched by the American forces during World War I. He would have then went on to participate with his field artillery unit in the final Allied offensives of the war. Promoted to captain, Paul Wing remained in the U.S. Army after World War I, serving in the Panama Canal Zone in 1920 and stationed at Fort Bliss near El Paso, Texas in 1922. And here's where Wing's military story takes an interesting turn. First, he was retired from active duty in 1922 due to a disability sustained in the line of duty, and which I have absolutely no details on. And second, the family moved to Hollywood and started working in show business. In 1924, Paul's nine and 10 year old daughters, Madison and Martha, who went professionally by Pat Wing and Toby Wing, began appearing in various films. Toby Wing appeared in 72 films before retiring from acting in 1938. Pat remained in the business until 1941 and appeared in 34 films. They both had that 1930s bombshell look and I've put a couple pictures of them on Facebook and Instagram. Paul began working in Paramount Studios' middle management in the late 1920s, and he became an assistant director of movies in the 1930s. He and his family lived in Pasadena, California, where Paul was an aide to the Grand Marshal of the 1931 New Year's Rose Parade. On the evening of Sunday, May 6, 1935, Paul boarded a plane with other Paramount executives and crew for an overnight flight to Washington, D.C where they would be filming a movie in nearby Annapolis, Maryland. It was a twin propeller plane with 13 people on board, including the pilot and co-pilot. Pictures of this type of plane remind me of the planes that Indiana Jones takes when he travels around the world for his adventures, if that gives you a visual. Just before 3 a.m., Paul Wing's plane was nearing St. Louis, Missouri, where it was scheduled to land for refueling when it became fog-blinded. Remember that planes in the mid-1930s didn't have the navigation tools we have today. A write-up explained, The airliner crashed when its wingtip hit the ground as it flew under a low cloud ceiling at very low level over dark, fog-shrouded country, while its pilots were trying desperately to reach a nearby emergency landing field before their fuel ran out. Can you imagine how low to the ground that plane must have been flying for one of its wingtips to hit the ground? News reports said it crashed in a muddy pasture about 15 miles from the landing field. The crash became known as TWA Flight 6. The LA Times and other newspapers recorded eyewitness accounts. It seemed that we merely went on and on through the heavy curtain of fog that enshrouded the earth. And suddenly, without warning, came the crash. The plane didn't go into a spin or a dive. It was just that sudden, awesome crash. I believe we must have hit the ground as though in landing and then turned over. 
Just before impact, the pilot supposedly turned around and told passengers, Buckle your seatbelts! But being close to 3 a.m., many of the passengers were asleep and didn't hear the pilot's warning. Both the pilot and co-pilot died in the crash. A farmer who witnessed the crash, and I believe the plane crashed in his pasture, related that the pilot's last words were, I was forced down because of lack of gasoline. A fellow Paramount traveler said, I was completely knocked out and when I came to, I was lying out there near the wreckage with the dead and dying around me. This quote makes me wonder whether the passengers were thrown from the plane or whether they were pulled out and laid on the ground. And I haven't found further details about that. Five people, including the two pilots, died in the crash. Among them was a U.S. Senator from New Mexico. Paul Wing himself suffered a broken neck and crushed chest. Doctors feared he might die, and his wife Martha flew to Missouri the next day to be by his side. Thankfully, though, he recovered, but he had to wear a neck brace for the next two years. And that means he might have been wearing a neck brace on March 5, 1936, when he accepted an Academy Award for Best Director during the 8th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony. The win came for his work on the 1935 movie Lives of a Bengal Lancer. Starring the famed 1930s actor Gary Cooper, Lives of a Bengal Lancer was about British soldiers on the northwest frontier of India defending a stronghold against a rebellion. It was a popular and well-received movie that, despite being set in India, was filmed entirely in California. Here's an audio clip from that movie. You thought what, Mr. McGregor? You were going after your son. This incident will not change our plans in any respect. I'd just begun to think I was wrong about you, but I wasn't. You haven't a human bone in your body. There's not a drop of blood in your veins. You're nothing but a... So you sit here with your regiment while they kill your son by inches. Well, I won't. I'm going after him, whether you like it or not. In the great tradition of Gunga Din and Bo Jest, Gary Cooper stars in The Lives of a Bengal Lancer. And that officially makes Paul Wing the first Academy Award winner spotlighted on Left Behind. That also makes him the first person on the podcast to have an IMDb page. Actually, that's not quite true because, believe it or not, I have an IMDb page for my work on the NBC series Who Do You Think You Are and for a small independent documentary called The Baseball Bond. I am credited as genealogist and as genealogist coordinator. Okay, enough bragging about this tiny claim to fame because it's definitely not comparable with being an assistant director or winning an Academy Award. Paul Wing also has another first for the podcast. In April 1940, he was living with his wife and youngest child in Los Angeles and reported his occupation as retired army officer. Seven months later, however, he was recalled into active duty, this time as part of the Army's Signal Corps. That's the division responsible for communications, radio operating, and so forth. Thus, he is the first person highlighted on Left Behind to be called back into active duty after retirement. Major Paul Wing found himself in the Philippines in 1941 and became part of General MacArthur's staff. He would have withdrawn with the general to Corregidor Island in early 1942, where the U.S. Army's Philippine headquarters was located inside the Melinda Tunnel. 
Now, I describe and discuss the details of Melinta Tunnel in the last episode, which is number 40. So you can go back to that episode if you're interested in details about the tunnel structure and life in the tunnel and other things like that. Major Wing and the Signal Corps shared lateral tunnel number 12 with the Army's Finance Department. On April 24, 1942, while Corregidor was under constant bombardment from Japanese forces on the Bataan Peninsula, which I've described in the last couple of episodes, Major Wing took a photograph of the Finance Department's portion of that tunnel. In this photo, we can see helmets, gear bags, and even a few pieces of clothing or towels hanging on the walls. In the rear portion of the photograph, and mostly out of focus, is a partition that hides from our view the signal core area of the tunnel. There are 16 men featured in the photograph. Most of them are looking at the camera, and there's a couple who are obscured and unidentifiable. Most of the men are sitting at their desks, and since they're in a tunnel, the men are all at different depths in our view. That is, there are men close to the camera and in focus, and there are men farther back whose facial features are blurry. And again, this photo is on Facebook and Instagram, so you can get a look at it for yourself. Within two weeks of this photograph being taken, all 16 of these men and the photographer Paul Wing would be prisoners of war. And I get the impression that the men knew the end was near. You can see it in their faces, especially in the set of their mouths and in their eyes. One young man in particular, a staff sergeant named Aaron Pressman, is especially captivating. He is sitting at his desk with his elbows resting on a few books and has a pencil grasp in one hand, and his eyes seem to grab the attention of the viewer and express his exhaustion and perhaps desperation at his situation. Now this is one of the last known photographs smuggled off Corregidor Island before the Japanese invaded on May 6, 1942. Of its provenance, the official National Archives caption states, The original was lost en route to the United States. The last submarine to contact Corregidor on May 3, 1942, picked up this copy, which has been furnished to the Signal Corps by Colonel J.R. Vance of the Finance Office. By the way, Colonel R.J. Vance is in the photo's background. That last submarine was very likely the USS Spearfish which snuck through the Japanese naval blockade to evacuate 27 people and some documents from Corregidor on the night of May 3, 1942. Two nights later, Japanese invasion forces landed on the island. Five of the 16 pictured men died while in captivity. This photo is likely the last image taken of them. Throughout the rest of this episode, I'll share details about the lives and wartime experiences of the four men who are closest to the camera. They are Walter Werner, Aaron Pressman, Arthur Kukendall, and Meredith Huff, as well as cameraman Paul Wing, who we've already been discussing. Now, for time's sake, I can talk only about four of these men. So I've posted short life sketches of all the identified servicemen on this episode's webpage, and that link is in the show description. Major Paul Wing and the Finance Department men became POWs on May 6, 1942. They remained on Corregidor Island until May, when all the Corregidor POWs were taken to the Cabanatuan camps in central Luzon Island, which is the Philippines' largest island. The Cabanatuan POW camp was actually three camps. 
stretched several miles apart along a road leading away from the city of Cabanatuan. When brought to the camps, the corregidor of POWs first filled camp number three, which was the farthest camp from the city. Then the remaining 1,500 or so corregidor POWs were placed in camp number two. The water supply at that camp was inadequate, so a few days later, on June 3, 1942, camp number two closed, and the POWs there transferred to camp number one. From various sources, I believe that 30-year-old Staff Sergeant Walter Werner was one of the camp two men transferred to camp number one. Walter A. Werner, born on June 30, 1911, in Manhattan, New York, faced life's challenges from an early age. When he was three and a half, his mother passed away from heart disease, leaving his father, Ernest, to raise Walter and his older sister. By 1920, the widowed Ernest had moved his children about 115 miles or 185 kilometers south to Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, which is on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Ernest supported his children as a salesman for a machine company. The family remained in the Swarthmore area throughout Walter's growing up years. He graduated from high school there in 1931 and soon joined the Philadelphia-based Hedgerow Theater Company. He performed in their yearly plays from at least 1933 to 1936. A 28-year-old, 5'7", 147-pound Walter enlisted in the U.S. Army in August 1939 and was assigned to the Finance Department. When Staff Sergeant Werner arrived at Cabanatuan in summer 1942 after becoming a prisoner of war, the camps were experiencing rampant diseases and incredibly high death rates which continued throughout that summer. Among those numbers was Walter Werner. Malaria and dysentery claimed his life at 2 p.m. on July 23, 1942, just two and a half months after being taken captive and mere weeks after his 31st birthday. Most burials at Cabanatuan Camp No. 1 at this time were in mass graves and no existing records marked locations of individual remains within those mass graves. Thus, after the war, his remains could not be identified, and he couldn't be returned home for burial near his family. Today we can find Walter's name on the tablets of the missing at the Manila American Cemetery. He posthumously received the Purple Heart, and in February 1946, his father Ernest gifted a portion of a stained glass window to the Trinity Church in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, in memory of his only son, Walter. The disease and death rates at Cabanatuan stayed high throughout that summer, but they began to decline in fall of 1942. However, the camp soon saw drastic decreases in POW numbers when the Japanese military decided to transport POWs to work camps in Japan, China, and other parts of the Eastern Pacific. These transportations began in fall 1942, and among the first POWs leaving Cabanatuan in those early days was Staff Sergeant Aaron Pressman. Born on March 28, 1917 in Philadelphia, so not too far from where Walter Werner grew up, Aaron Pressman was the oldest of John and Miriam Pressman's three children. The Pressmans were a Jewish family, and in fact, all four of Aaron's grandparents were Jews born in Russia, and you probably know what that experience would have been like for them. Aaron's father, John, owned a fruit store, 
The family lived on New Market Street in Philadelphia, and Aaron seems to have lived in that building throughout his childhood and up until he went to war. Now, I don't believe that building exists anymore. The current New Market Street literally butts up against I-95. It's a one-lane street with a very narrow sidewalk and then a high freeway wall. So perhaps Aaron's home was demolished at some point to make way for that freeway. Regardless, Aaron graduated from Central High School in 1935 and ventured into higher education at Philadelphia's Temple University with a pre-medical major according to the school's yearbook. And speaking of that college yearbook, when I first saw his photo in it, I thought it was a picture of him as a chubby-cheeked, innocent-looking boy of 14. In reality, he was probably 20 years old in that photograph. Also, a newspaper reported that he was an athlete at Temple University, and he worked as a swimming instructor at the city pool the summer before entering the army. On September 6, 1940, Aaron enlisted in the U.S. Army Finance Department and found himself in Manila when the war broke out. He was able to contact his parents shortly after war broke out and assure them he was okay. But, of course, that okay status wouldn't last long, and he was taken to Cabanatuan with the rest of the Finance Department. But his stay would be short. On October 8, 1942, a mere five months after being captured, Staff Sergeant Aaron Pressman and 1,960 other POWs boarded the Japanese transport ship Totori Maru. Nearly two months later, he reached Houghton POW Camp, located in Mukden, Manchuria, which is, today, Shenyang in northeastern China. A history of that camp reads, 11 November 1942. 1,202 American POWs arrive in Munkden from Manila via Pusan on the Korean Peninsula and are sent to the so-called North Camp, POW Camp Hoten No. 1, then a group of old Chinese army board barracks built partly underground. From what I found, these arriving POWs were the first prisoners at the camp. The men were sick, perhaps from the hellish conditions they endured on the transport ship or poor camp conditions or both. They had arrived at the beginning of winter, which didn't offer any reprieve for those POWs who were already sick. In the first three months at Camp Houghton, more than 200 of the original 1,200 POWs died. Sadly, Aaron Pressman was one of them. He died February 14, 1943, at the camp hospital, a victim of beriberi, dysentery, and corneal ulcers, basically eye infections. He was buried in the Camp Houghton Cemetery. He would have turned 26 the next month. Staff Sergeant Pressman's parents wouldn't learn of his passing until at least two and a half years later when the war finally ended. In the meantime, however, they did receive other tragic news. Back in Philly, Aaron's younger brother Herbert had joined the Army Air Corps and was sent to Europe. On August 1st, 1944, just two months after the Normandy invasion, 20-year-old Staff Sergeant Herbert Pressman perished during a bombing raid in France. I believe he was on board a downed bomber. His remains were never recovered. Today, he's memorialized on the tablets of the missing at the Brittany American Cemetery in France. As a parent myself, I'm trying to imagine the anxiety one would feel with their only two sons off at war knowing one is in the line of fire and that the other is a prisoner out in the Pacific somewhere. 
Then learning that one son had died and the other, well, Erin Pressman's parents would have waited and hoped for more than a year after news of Herbert's death that Erin was alive and coming home. But when the war ended, instead of a joyful homecoming, Erin's mother found herself writing the first of several letters to the army, inquiring about her oldest son's burial at the Houghton camp and asking how to bring him home. I want very much to bring him home and let him rest among his own people and in the soil for which he and his younger brother died to defend. You'll recall that her younger son's remains were never found. By early 1946, the local American Legion had been named the Sergeant Aaron A. Pressman Auxiliary Unit in Pressman's honor. His mother Miriam gifted two trees to the unit one each in memory of her two sons who died in the war. Staff Sergeant Aaron Pressman's remains were returned to Pennsylvania in 1948, where they found their eternal rest at Roosevelt Memorial Cemetery. Now Staff Sergeant Aaron Pressman's departure from Cabana Tawan in fall 1942 was soon followed by Staff Sergeant Arthur Kukendall. He followed Pressman northward in November 1942 only Kukendall was headed for Japan. Born on June 7, 1920, in Reese's Mill, West Virginia, Arthur Greenwell Kukendall's life unfolded against the backdrop of rural America. He grew up on the family farm amidst the charming northeastern West Virginia landscape with his parents and four older siblings. I used to live in Maryland, just north of D.C., and I've driven through this rural area of West Virginia during the fall. It is beautiful and picturesque. It still has that old American charm, what I'd imagine the American colonies to have looked like just before the revolution. Eager to pursue agriculture, he enrolled at Potomac State College in Kaiser, West Virginia, the closest town to his family's farm. He was active in the local 4-H unit, which as you know is an agricultural organization, and participated in 4-H summer camps. His life took a somber turn in May 1937 when Arthur's father passed away from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his abdomen. I have scoured newspapers looking for more information about this event, but I've come up empty-handed. Regardless, Arthur continued his education. He seems to have graduated college in spring 1940 and then spent that summer working on the family farm with his three older brothers. By the way, that farm was worth $11,000 in 1930. In 1940, the farm where the family resided was worth $3,000. In this, we may be able to see the damaging effects of the Great Depression. The family farm seems to have lost 75% of its value, which is unthinkable. Now, it's also possible that the family could have sold off portions of their land, which would decrease the value as well. In October 1940, Arthur enlisted in the Army's Finance Department and, as you already know, 18 months later found himself imprisoned at Cabanatuan. On November 7, 1942, Staff Sergeant Arthur Kukendall, along with 1,600 other POWs, left Manila on the hell ship Nagato Maru. 20 days later, he and 400 of those Nagato Maru POWs arrived at the Tanagawa POW camp near Osaka, Japan, on the country's main islands. A fellow POW wrote this account of arrival at Tanagawa. We marched into Tanagawa at nightfall. 
There were five new barracks, very flimsy constructed with dirt floors and paper-thin walls, coming six inches off the floor. Barracks were very cold. There were two decks of bunks, with a ladder going up every 20 feet to the second deck, which was eight to 10 feet off the ground. Shoes had to be taken off at the foot of the ladder. At the foot of each bunk were five synthetic blankets made out of peanut shell fiber and a rigid pillow in the shape of a small cylinder packed with rice husks. The barracks had no heat and with temperatures falling below freezing, the conditions were pretty tough. After coming from the tropics, this was quite a shock to your system. Staff Sergeant Kukendall's life at Tanagawa was difficult. The POWs were severely malnourished and the camp had an excessive death rate. The imprisoned men worked to, quote, manually tear down a mountainside to build a breakwater for a primitive dry dock and submarine base, close quote. Now, I don't know exactly what manually tear down a mountainside means, but I do know that at other Japanese work camps, POWs would use shovels and pickaxes to dig away at the base of hills until the dirt above collapsed and hopefully the POWs could retreat from the falling earth and escape being buried alive. In April 1944, nearly a year and a half after Kukendall's arrival, Tanagawa camp closed, and he was transferred with 105 POWs about 275 miles or 440 kilometers north to the Omi POW camp near the city of Omi on Japan's western coast. Arthur worked with other POWs in a quarry and at a cement factory. I discovered a group picture of all the Americans in this camp, and I'm 99% certain I've identified Sergeant Kukendall in it, sitting in the front row. That picture is on Facebook and Instagram and the website. Omi Camp was liberated by Allied forces on September 6, 1945. 25-year-old Arthur Kukendall, a free man once again, was trained across the island to Yokohama to wait transportation home. Five days after liberation, Arthur's mother received the first notification about him since the fall of Corregidor. The news that her youngest son was alive, after almost three years of silence about his whereabouts, must have relieved a tremendous anxiety, since two more of her sons were also serving in the war. Now you'll recall that Staff Sergeants Arthur Kukendall and Aaron Pressman both left Kabanatuan in fall 1942. That leaves two of our five POWs still remaining at Kabanatuan, including Staff Sergeant Meredith Huff. Meredith Huff was born on January 16, 1910 in Texas. All the sources are in agreement with that fact, but just three months later, the infant and his parents lived in a Tacoma, Washington boarding house. Now, a move like that with a newborn would be difficult today, and I can hardly imagine such a move back in 1910. The family stayed in Washington State until at least 1912, when Meredith's younger sister and only sibling was born. But by 1920, nine-year-old Meredith and his family resided in northeastern Nebraska, where his father Seymour worked as a manager for an electrical company. Five years later, the family had relocated to rural southwest Iowa, and five years after that, so we're in 1930 now, they lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Meredith's father Seymour was originally from. Now why the family moved around so much, I have no idea. They seem to have relocated at a fast pace. 
Then tragedy struck in 1937 when Meredith's father died. That's the same year that Arthur Kukendall lost his father. Meredith Huff, a 5 foot 8 inch, 151 pound, 28 year old with gray eyes and brown hair, joined the Army's Finance Department in December 1939. After being captured, he didn't remain long at Kabanatuan because Japanese officials seemed to have moved him through several other Philippine war camps. In March 1943, after a year of silence regarding her son's whereabouts and his status, Huff's widowed mother Alice finally learned that her son was a prisoner of war. Then, nearly a year after that, the American public was finally informed about the atrocities committed by Japanese military against Allied POWs, including disturbing details of the Bataan Death March. Alice Huff had no way of knowing that her only son was not on that march when she told a newspaper, This report of Japanese atrocities should shake the nation from top to bottom. In the same article, a sister of another POW stated, All I can think of is, if that sort of thing is going on, what do our boys over there think of us? Certainly we haven't been into this with as much force in that area as we should have. It's just terrible to think of them just waiting and hoping. Waiting and hoping, and trying to survive. That was Staff Sergeant Huff's life until October 1944, when he, like Staff Sergeants Arthur Kukendall and Aaron Pressman two years earlier, was loaded onto a Japanese transport ship called the Arisan Maru with some 1,800 other POWs. The Arisan Maru had no markings to indicate the cargo it held as it sailed north in the South China Sea as part of a larger Japanese naval convoy. The Arisan Maru was the slowest ship in that group, and the American submarine USS Sharp torpedoed it around 5 p.m. on October 24, 1944. Most of the POWs escaped the ship's holds and swam to other ships in the convoy, only to be beaten away by long poles wielded by Japanese sailors. Only nine POWs survived that sinking. On the third anniversary of the ship's sinking, Staff Sergeant Huff's mother, Alice, wrote a letter to the U.S. Army's Quartermaster General's office. My son, Staff Sergeant Meredith L. Huff, lost his life on a prison ship on October 24, 1944, in the South China Sea. I've waited three years hoping that by some way he might have been saved when the ship went down, but have decided now that there is no hope. And she was correct. 34-year-old Staff Sergeant Meredith Huff had not survived the sinking. Also perished in the ship's sinking were Don Robbins from Episode 4, Alan Manning from Episode 10, and Adolphus Hutchison from Episode 12. After realizing her son wouldn't be coming home, she then asked, I would very much like to have the flag that would have covered his casket had he, like thousands of others, been shipped home for burial. I have no place that I think of as his final resting place, so I would like his flag to fly on the days when our flag flies in honor of our war dead. She also asked, in this and a second letter, for an official military grave marker to place in their local cemetery in Meredith's honor. She received the flag, but not the grave marker. Instead, a government letter told her, 
It is with regret that this office must advise you that there is no authority whereby a government headstone or marker may be furnished for a member of the armed forces whose remains have not been recovered. Legislation to provide for such memorials has been submitted to Congress during previous sessions. However, this legislation has not been enacted into law. Today, a cenotaph in memory of Staff Sergeant Meredith Huff resides at Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis. It is not an official military headstone or marker. Staff Sergeant Huff's name appears with the other Arisan Maru victims and that of fellow Finance Department Staff Sergeant Walter Werner on the tablets of the missing at Manila American Cemetery. Huff received posthumously the Purple Heart Medal. The deaths of Staff Sergeants Meredith Huff, Walter Werner, and Aaron Pressman decimated each of their families. Sergeants Huff and Werner were the only sons in their families. Aaron Pressman and his only brother both died in the war. With their deaths, all three of these family names died with them, as far as their immediate family goes. Thankfully, each man had a sister who could, hopefully, pass on these heroes' memories and legacies to future generations. Major Paul Wing, our Academy Award winner, remained at Cabanatuan for two years and nine months. During his stay there, he helped create the camp's library. The Japanese officials over the camp allowed the POWs living there, especially those too sick or disabled to do hard labor, to create some semblance of normalcy, like holding church services, putting on theatrical plays, and even establishing a library. I suspect that Major Wing was unable to perform labor duties because of lasting issues from his neck, which was broken in that plane crash, as well as the disability that caused him to retire from the military in the early 1920s. He was also 53 by war's end, so age probably played a factor in his abilities. My great-grandfather Alma Sam lived in the same Kabanatuan bunkhouse with Major Wing. Sam recorded in his memoir, Many of the men had included in their packs and bags a book or two. As a result, this furnished the nucleus of a library, which was established by pooling these volumes. Books on mathematics, chemistry, biography, religion, fiction, economics, law, history, geography, etc. Plus a few movie, detective, and similar magazines made up this diversified and amazing collection. Major Wing and another army officer, together with a few assistants, who were unable to perform hard labor due to physical incapacitation, handled the library. The circulation and records were patterned after the library set up here in the United States. For index cards, we cut up and used the pasteboard and plyboard boxes in which our Red Cross supplies had been shipped. There was a detail of men constantly at work repairing books which had been damaged by constant thumbing. Of course, we had to resort to primitive methods, but it did the trick. Paste was made from rice residue, and a homemade bookbinding press was fashioned from a few boards into which a short piece of galvanized pipe had been inserted and a wooden screw carved out with a pocket knife. Wing secretly, and at severe risk of punishment or even death, took pictures inside the camp. Such pictures were definitely something that the Japanese officials would not want the outside world seeing. After the war, the pictures allowed U.S. officials, and now us, to see exact conditions inside the camp. And how Wing could have held on to his camera and film despite Japanese body searches, I have no idea. 
After the war, he was awarded the Legion of Merit for taking those pictures. I'll post one or two of them on Facebook and Instagram. In fall 1944, the Japanese transferred about 1,500 Kabanatuan POWs out of the camp for transportation to Japan. Only 511 POWs, including Paul Wing and my great-grandfather, remained at the camp. These men were too sick, too disabled, and too weak to work in work camps in Japan. Those disabilities likely saved Wing's life. The overwhelming majority of the 1,500 POWs transferred out of Kabanatuan in fall 1944 died en route to Japan. The Kabanatuan POWs witnessed a lot of airplane activity over camp on January 30, 1945. My great-grandfather wrote, The evening had drawn to a quiet close after an unusually active day filled with the sweet hum of American aircraft overhead. It was the heaviest umbrella of air activity we'd experienced, and we were sure it might be a prelude to another landing by our troops on Luzon. Quick note, American forces had landed on Luzon Island a few weeks before this and the Kabanatuan POWs had learned about it, perhaps from their secret radio, which I'll discuss in an upcoming episode. Little did we realize during those last passing hours that all the airplane activity was for our immediate and direct benefit. Several of us, Major Wing and other officers, were sitting as usual on our homemade easy chairs in front of our Bahe, chatting and meditating. Just as daylight was signing off, a couple of fighter planes passed us toward the west. Off in the distance, an occasional flare could be seen, and now and then the flash of artillery fire over the horizon to the northwest. Suddenly, from the direction of the rear camp gate, not many yards away, the roar for many guns was heard. At the first burst, we instinctively dropped flat to the ground. A private in the camp later told reporters, We heard shots just as we were about to go to bed, and someone came running through the camp yelling, Get out, fellows. The Yanks are here. Everyone go to the main gate. Then a ranger grabbed us and helped us out. Some of us thought at first it was a Jap trick to lure us out and shoot us. Here's my great-grandfather again. Pandemonium reigned for about 20 minutes, then the sound of hurrying footsteps punctuated by shouting voices. And almighty God, they were speaking English! The forces were a group of U.S. Army Rangers and Filipino guerrillas who traveled behind enemy lines to liberate the Cabanatuan POW camp. American forces had mounted the operation because of concerns that the Japanese would execute the camp's prisoners, as they had done at other POW camps in the Philippines. A newly liberated Major Paul Wing told a reporter, Those rangers gave me more drama than I expect to see in all the rest of my eventful life. Are all American soldiers like those rangers? Those boys saved 510 lives because I'm certain the Japs were going to use us as hostages. The guerrillas and rangers led the sick, disabled, but gratefully liberated POWs back to American-held territory where they received medical treatment and wrote letters to their families. A newspaper reported, All were anxious for news from home. The first question many asked was, Who was elected vice president? They all knew President Roosevelt was re-elected but didn't know the name of his running mate. Instead of coming straight home, Major Paul Wing rejoined the Signal Corps staff in time to help with the capture of Manila in February 1945. After the war, Paul Wing was advanced to the rank of lieutenant colonel and by early 1947 had retired from the U.S. Army. 
He settled with his wife on a farm in Chesapeake, Virginia, where he worked the land. He was involved with community organizations, even becoming commander of his local American Legion unit in 1953. 65-year-old Paul Reuben Wing passed away at the Naval Hospital in Norfolk, Virginia on May 29, 1957. He had heart disease and had suffered a heart attack a couple days before his passing. Heart disease was not uncommon among liberated POWs, a byproduct of the diseases and malnutrition they suffered as prisoners. This extraordinary, multi-talented man today rests at the Christ Church Kingston Parish Cemetery in Virginia. Staff Sergeant Arthur Kukendall, who we left in Yokohama, Japan, waiting for a transport back to the United States, remained in the Army Finance Department after the war. In 1946, he tied the knot with Irene H. Cool. The couple likely met through the 4-H, where Irene served as a 4-H club agent. Irene was a college graduate and had been a school teacher, but... World War II broke out, and in a burst of patriotic zeal, she became a Rosie the Riveter. She worked special jobs for the military in everything from electric welding to airplane manufacturing. After their marriage, Irene left the 4-H and followed Arthur on his various military assignments, which included Texas, South Carolina, and Indiana. The couple had at least three sons during their travels with the military. Arthur's military dedication persisted until February 1961, when he retired as a captain after 21 years of service in the U.S. Army's Finance Department. And that's when those country roads took Arthur and Irene home to northern West Virginia, which we know from John Denver is almost heaven. Arthur initially entered the insurance industry, becoming a State Farm agent by fall 1961. I found a couple of his insurance advertisement in the local newspapers, and I'll post one online. In 1963, Arthur joined the Liberty Trust Company of Maryland, where he remained until retirement in 1985. During his tenure, he became the bank's assistant treasurer, which, if I'm understanding correctly, was part of the bank's board of directors. Beyond work, Arthur was actively involved in several community organizations, including West Virginia's 4-H All-Stars, and a couple of veterans' organizations. He served as an elder of the First Presbyterian Church of Cumberland, Maryland. And he also spent 30 years in the church bowling league, which may not have been an extremely spiritual experience, but it would have elevated his bowling game. On August 28, 1994, 74-year-old Arthur Kukendall passed away after a long illness. His wife Irene passed away in 2019 at age 97. Today, their family has grown to include at least nine grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren. As I ponder Arthur Kukendall's service and legacy, I wonder what his fellow finance department staff sergeants Walter Warner, Aaron Pressman, and Meredith Huff would have accomplished if their young lives hadn't been ended way too early. It's a question I often wonder about the thousands upon thousands of young single men who lost their lives during the Second World War and in other conflicts. As you may recall, the last photo featuring these men was smuggled off Corregidor Island on the last submarine to evade the Japanese Navy gauntlet before the Philippines fell. Also escaping on that submarine were a handful of nurses and high-ranking officers who were about to experience life on a World War II-era submarine. So, be sure to hit the follow button because there will be more on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about these five men on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are all in the show description. Left Behind is research, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Jake Herrenberg, Mike Davis, Valerie Scatina, Tyler Harmon, Paul Sutherland, and Emily Herrenberg. Special thanks to Steve Riggins, great nephew of Walter Werner, for his time and photographs. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And remember to subscribe to Left Behind because you won't want to miss next time's harrowing underwater escape and journey across the equator. (laughs) 